From Arizona to Maine, New Jersey to Nebraska, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the midterm elections are now underway. What are the big issues dominating races for the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives? Keith Naughton of Silent Majority Strategies and The Hill has the answer. Core inflation is at a 40-year high, and gas prices are again on the increase. The impact on American families is real. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The Cato Institute has published a new report card on the nation's governors. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Chris Edwards of Cato. And President Joe Biden and the left are attempting to cancel Columbus Day. On this week's American Radio Journal Commentary, Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College says that is an effort to rewrite history. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Big issues usually decide elections and likely will do so again this year. Here to talk about what is on the minds of voters is Keith Naughton. Keith is principal at Silent Majority Strategies and a frequent columnist in The Hill. Keith, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Keith, it's always important as we head into the final weeks, the final days before a major midterm election, which issues are going to dominate. We've heard from the left that issues such as abortion are going to dominate. We've heard from the right that the economy is going to dominate. What are you seeing at this point as to what the big issues are going to be that are going to impact this election? Well, overwhelmingly, it's uh, the economy and inflation. The economy has always been the most powerful issue, particularly when uh, people are feeling insecure. And that is certainly the case now. You know, we've got high inflation. It doesn't look like it's easing very much at this time. People are very concerned about jobs and the economic situation. That is always going to be the overwhelming issue. These other issues are going to be important. They're going to slice off some votes here and there. But economy and inflation are going to be number one. Typically, in a midterm election, the first midterm election of a presidency, we see a fairly significant swing, Keith, to the opposition party. Do you see that historical trend at play so far this year? I think that is going to happen, mostly because of the situation, the economy and uh, inflation. That's sort of a double whammy along with just the general pattern that the party out of power does better. You know, typically you win the presidency, you sort of uh, relax, you feel satisfied. Some people in your coalition are unhappy they didn't get everything that they want, and so your turnout falls a little bit, whereas the party out of power is unhappy. You know, they want to get back in, so their turnout tends to go up. When you overlay that with problems in the economy, it should be an um, almost historic midterm for the Republicans. Uh, The challenge is they've had some poor candidate quality. The abortion issue is a net negative for the party. And I think President Trump's been raising his profile as much as he can to promote himself when it's really best to talk about the issues because the issues are what's going to carry the day. President Trump, of course, always likes to keep the spotlight. But the real issue here, Keith, is it not... President Biden and his popularity. Tell us a little bit about where he stands with the electorate. 
Yeah, his popularity is fairly low. I don't know if it's quite an historic low, but it's it's uh, low enough. There's a bit of an uptick in September, but it's uh, sinking again. He and the former president are, are, are pretty much in the low 40s to upper 30s. And as I said in my piece, President Trump was president. President Biden is president. So the person who is president is going to matter a lot more in voters' minds. In some of the state-by-state races for the U.S. Senate, you mentioned that candidate quality has been a bit of an issue for Republicans. Can you get specific as to what states some of the Republican nominees have struggled a bit more than what maybe they should be? Well, I think there's been a problem with uh, inexperience. For example, in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz is is, uh, running for what is an open seat. And I think being new to politics and campaigning, it's taken a while for him to to get his feet wet and get his bearings. Um, I mean, he's recently improved. I think he's running better than he was earlier. Masters in Arizona has struggled some. He's also a new candidate. And uh, uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, to be perfectly blunt, he might be one of the worst nominees in the cycle. But even so, he's only a couple points behind Warnock. And all of these candidates, even though they have struggled early, they still have the potential to win. It would appear that the momentum at the moment is on the side of Republicans here, Keith. You didn't mention states like Ohio, where J.D. Vance is a first-time candidate, but would appear by recent polling that he's taken the lead there. Uh, That's true. He's taken a small lead, uh, and he has struggled. He's another rookie candidate who's had some trouble. One of the things that should be concerning Republicans going forward, even if they do uh, win majorities in both chambers, is how far they've lagged their governor's candidates. And so as a national party, you need to have a national agenda that people really like. In every competitive Senate state where there's a governor's uh, election, the Republican Senate candidate is far behind the Republican governor's candidate, especially in Ohio, where DeWine is winning quite easily where Vance is probably going to win, but he's struggling. We've talked a bit here about the economy, which appears to, at this point, has taken center stage as the dominant issue. But in some of the races, and particularly in Pennsylvania, where you referenced Dr. Oz earlier, it would appear the crime and public safety issue is also a big issue. Do you see that playing out in other races around the country? I think it is. I think there's really two issues that have generally benefited Republicans over time. One is the economy, and the other is issues of security, whether it's crime or whether it's national security. Republicans and conservative candidates have always been viewed as much safer alternatives, much stronger on that issue. And certainly uh, the issue of crime in the country, it's not going down. It may be uneven about how strong it is in different areas but it's certainly not benefiting the Democrats in in Pennsylvania. This will be the first election that we'll have after the redistricting that has taken place and the reapportionment around the country. So we have all these redrawn congressional district maps in most states. Did either party get an advantage coming out of that process? Well, I think as far as uh, where the seats move, Republicans gained about two, I think one to two, based on the uh, states that they won in, in 2020. But the Democrats, uh, supposedly, they did a better job of drawing the lines. But that's a double-edged sword, because when you import 
of voters who don't like you into a, into a district to try to create two competitive districts where you might have only had one, you run the risk of losing both. So if there's a strong Republican wave, the Democrats doing a better job of drawing might end up backfiring on them. <laughs> we have been talking with Keith Naughton. Keith is principal in Silent Majority Strategies. Also, he is a commentator for The Hill. And Keith, could you give us a website? You referenced your recent column there. Where can folks go to read that? Yeah, you can go on thehill.com and look on the opinion section. I've got a new piece up on Monday. So if you want to take a look at that, hope you enjoy it. Keith Naughton of Silent Majority Strategies and The Hill. Keith, thank you for being back with us. Thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He has been keeping an eye on all the economic data that has been coming out over the last couple of weeks. Unfortunately, none of it good. Scott, good to have you back with us. It's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. Inflation, of course, Scott, has been running at a 40-plus year high, and we have numbers from September. doesn't look like it's getting any better, does it? You know, it doesn't. And Club for Growth and Club for Growth PAC, we've been out in the field doing national surveys. We've done hundreds of polls over the last about 20 months of the Biden administration. And what we're learning is that poll after poll shows that Americans are most concerned about inflation. And what we're learning even now is that inflation's not going anywhere. And really, these radical policies that Joe Biden and uh, Democrat Congress have been inflicting upon the American people are exacerbating our economic pain and driving inflation to these record levels. We've spent nearly $10 trillion in new spending, and inflation has gone all the way from 1.4% in January 2021 to as high as 9.1% earlier this year in June. We learned recently that inflation currently stands at 8.3%, And if anybody takes a calculator out right now and and you take 100, right, let's pretend that's 100%. And then you divide that by 12 months, the answer is 8.3. And what that means is that one month of our income, one month of our earnings is being completely wiped out by Biden's socialist power grab that's causing everybody to work an extra month for free. You know, there's a lot of volatility right now within the economy. We know that food and energy prices are a big driver of inflation. But even when you remove those two items from inflation, it's known as core inflation, and that right now is also at a record high since 1982, is what the Labor Department recently said. And we know that Democrats predicted this, right? They predicted how these things would, would come about. And when you, when you think about the average wage loss from an individual, it's roughly $3,000 per individual or $6,000 for each family. And it might be coincidental that the Democrats in 2020 during the presidential election were proposing $6,000 in stimulus for families. The bottom line is they're bankrupting America, they're printing money, and it's having a real economic harm when it comes to long-standing inflation and, and how the Fed is going to get in front of that, what that means for Social Security benefits, and what it means overall for retirement security in America. I'm a little curious here and confused, Scott. A couple of months back, Congress passed and the president signed the Inflation Reduction Act. doesn't sound to me like inflation is being reduced at all. 
Well, you can put anything at the top of a bill, and you can call it what you want, but if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, then it's a duck. And what the Inflation Reduction Act was was really the Green New Deal. It was loaded with all these socialist economic policies related to our energy sector, a lot of green energy, environmental issues that are restricting job creators' abilities to really do job formation, increase productivity, increase wages, increase investment, the type of risk-taking that's necessary to grow the economy. And I think that's something that Republicans can champion in a new Republican Congress to reverse this record inflation. We learned that the Social Security cost of living adjustment is 8.7 percent heading into 2023. But Social Security is on this path to insolvency already in 2034. And That COLA in 2020 was only 1.6%. So when Social Security runs out of money, that means that retirees aren't going to receive the $1,700 benefit increase, but instead there's an across-the-board cut to make sure that beneficiaries do receive some benefits, and that would be subject to about $5,000 in reduced benefits. And when you think about the people that really rely on that promise of the Social Security safety net, I think it's a real political consequence of what's happened over the last three years with all this outrageous levels of federal spending. When we've decreased our buying power, when we've decreased the power of the dollar, I think that the GOP Congress better come up with some Social Security reform ideas. We need to eliminate disincentives to working. Some ideas that are out there is you could eliminate payroll taxes on anybody that's already obtained retirement age and actually allow them to work longer and receive more of their own hard-earned money. You know what the Democrats want to do? Of course, they want to increase taxes. If we had to increase taxes to maintain Social Security solvency, we'd be taking it from 12.8% to 15.4% in just the Social Security payroll tax. That doesn't even take into consideration what's going on with Medicare's insolvency as well. Democrats don't care about that. We know that they want Medicare for all. They want to completely hijack health care in America to have a single-payer system that causes healthy people to totally subsidize the cost of sick people in America. We saw President Biden this past week, Scott, go to the ice cream shop and stand there licking his ice cream cone and saying, oh, no, the economy is strong. Everything is fine. Is he a bit detached from reality here? People at the kitchen table aren't really seeing that. We've got all sorts of indicators up and down the economy, from the stock market to the Federal Reserve to Congress to the executive branch that show that everything that we've been doing in these big government policies is actually making our economic situation worse. So we need to get government out of the way. We need the private sector to thrive. The best way to do that is to reduce taxation on job creators and also to reduce the regulatory burden on job formation. When you have low regulation and low taxation, you get what we had with Donald Trump at the end of 2019, which was this economic boom pushing wages among the Asians, Hispanic, and African-American communities to all-time highs. It was all-time highs among women. The economy was thriving. And, of course, we hit a a pretty terrible situation. But I honestly think, in retrospect, that the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of it was fuel thrown on the fire to damage Donald Trump's reelection chances. Well, congratulations. We got Joe Biden, and now we have the sickest economy in 40 years. 
And with the sickest economy in 40 years and midterm elections uh, actually underway in many states, certainly Election Day approaching here on November 8th, is there going to be a political price for Biden and the Democrats to pay for all of this? Well, certainly one political price is that they're going to lose the House of Representatives. I think everybody in America understands that the United States Senate races are going to be incredibly close. Several states, I think about a dozen states, are in play to swing one direction or the other. We've got a few big pickup opportunities from Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and New Hampshire for Republicans. And we need everybody to get out there, motivate your friends and neighbor, talk about your own economic situations with your adult children, and make sure that they understand the consequences of this radical socialist government that Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer are inflicting on all of the American people. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth joins us every week here on American Radio Journal. And Scott, tell us a bit about the Club for Growth. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. You can actually join and become a member for free. Learn more about our ideas on economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. Check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you. How is your state's governor doing? The Cato Institute has published a new report card on each of the nation's governors. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Cato's Chris Edwards. For America's governors, school is back in session and the report cards are out. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Baim with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Chris Edwards. He is an economist at the Cato Institute, and he is the author of their new and annual report that ranks the 50 governors of the country. The fiscal policy report card on America's governors gives them all grades from A to F. And we're going to grade a few of them right here. Chris, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks a lot for having me, Eric. This year, there are five governors in Cato's report that have gotten a grade of A, and there are eight of them who have received an F. Uh, Let's start with the A's, I guess. What what sort of common features do they have, and then why have the F's gotten the F's? Well, really quickly, our top scorer this year was Kim Reynolds, governor of Iowa, followed by Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, Pete Ricketts, Nebraska, Brad Little, Idaho, Doug Ducey of Arizona. Uh, All these folks have kept the clamp on spending the last few years, and they've all spearheaded major income tax reforms in their state. So Kim Reynolds of Iowa, for example, she's held spending to just a 2% annual growth over the last five years, and she signed into law a major reform that chopped the top income tax rate from 9% down to a 3.9% flat tax. So that is uh, really impressive. By the way, a number of these governors, like Reynolds and Chris Sununu and others, are very supportive of deregulatory actions like on occupational licensing and school choice and other pro-market reforms. This Cato report, though, we just look at the taxes and spending, and these are the top five governors, in our view, for keeping a lid on taxes and spending. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got eight governors who got the grade of F just as briefly as possible. What's the sort of common features there? I imagine it's uh, more taxes and more spending. I think the uh, two worst governors in the nation on taxes and spending really over the last decade have been the governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, and the governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee. Both states, the economies have done quite well because of they're on the Pacific and there's a lot of trading and so the you know, high-tech industry 
But they, so the, the revenues have poured into state governments in both Oregon and Washington. But these two governors have relentlessly pushed to increase, to add new taxes every year, payroll taxes and cigarette taxes and carbon taxes. And it's really remarkable. I mean, Jay Inslee, you know, Washington state has no income tax, but Jay Inslee's pushed to pass his capital gains tax. And the spending has just exploded under these governors. So there's a big difference between the A governors in our report and these F governors. When we talk about governors and uh, these sorts of decisions, you know, taxes and spending policy, obviously that's that's uh, something that is not just purely the governor that's deciding these things. These people are kind of figureheads in some way for the overall policies that the state is enacting. And of course, they're they're signing into law the policies that their state legislature is enacting or, or they may be blocking them. But you've got sort of a, a, an interesting way here of kind of summarizing the overall environment in the states. And so I want to look at the fact that this has been over the last few years, we've seen like a, a remarkable number of tax cuts that goes beyond just the governors that got the A's in your in your report card this year, but kind of throughout the mix, like who has maybe moved the most? Who has who has like gone in the right direction, gotten the you know the biggest improvement in their grade score over the last couple of years? Well, I got to say, Doug Ducey in his first couple of years, there was a, a couple of tax hikes he approved, and he he did less good in our uh, report card. And and this year though, he's a, a very solid A, one of the best governors in the in the country. He he warded off a major tax income tax hike in Arizona as well. then he went on the attack and put into law a, a major reduction and simplification moving to a flat tax. So there has been a huge wave of income tax cutting the last just two years. It's the big, biggest wave of tax cutting in the states in over four decades. 21 states have cut their income tax rates in just the last two years. So now uh, that's really remarkable. I actually think it's, it's really kind of profound because the you know there's a lot of different ways states could have uh, cut the, their taxes. They could have given a lot of one-time rebates, like a lot of Democratic governors have done. But Republican governors, to their credit, have been focused pretty strongly on supply-side reforms, meaning getting those top individual and corporate income tax rates down. So I think this is really good for long-term growth in the states. We're talking with Chris Edwards. He's an economist at the Cato Institute talking about Cato's new report, uh, report card, I should say, uh, ranking all of the governors in the country, giving them grades of A through F. Uh, Chris, just about a minute left here before we got to let you go. But this stuff, it's fun to, to rank the governors. It's fun to see who gets the A's and who gets the F's and all of that. But this stuff really matters. These policy decisions matter for people. And, and it's it's not just that they matter for people who are currently living in these states, but the states that have good leadership attract more people and more businesses. There's no doubt that there's an, there's a rising uh, awareness that uh, interstate migration is very in- important to state economies. Americans are moving from higher tax states to lower tax states. So, for example, if you look at the, the 25 lowest tax states in the nation, 20 of them have in-migration. Of the nine states that don't have individual income taxes, Eight of them experience consistent and strong immigration inflows, including a lot of cold states, a number of cold states like New Hampshire and South Dakota have inflows uh, of residents. So uh, governors are aware of this. I think some of the, the Democratic governors of states like New York, they have their heads stuck in the ground on this and there. But this is a reality. And in fact, just this year, 10 states cut their taxes on retirement income in an effort to attract well-heeled seniors. So states and governors are aware of this. I think it's a good pressure to that helps keep state tax rates down. 
Yeah, it's not just the nice weather that attracts people to Florida. It's the uh, the tax policies as well. Uh, Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. And again, that is Chris Edwards. You can check out his work and the rest of Cato's fine uh, work online at Cato.org, including this report card. You can find that up there as well. Uh, check out our coverage of what's going on in states around the country at Reason.com. And for Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. During the recent Columbus Day holiday, Christopher Columbus got little respect as woke culture attempts to cancel the man credited with being the first European to land in America. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. If you didn't celebrate Columbus Day this year, well, you're not alone. In fact, you may have merely not noticed. Others, however, are busy trying to cancel Columbus and the special day set aside for honoring the man credited with discovering America. In fact, they're trying to replace Columbus Day. That goal, a project of cultural revolutionaries on the far left, has been joined by the President of the United States. For the second year in a row, President Joe Biden designated the second Monday of October, historically set aside as Columbus Day, as Indigenous Peoples Day. Biden proclaimed, quote, Now, therefore, I, Joseph R. Biden, Jr., President of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim October 10, 2022, as Indigenous Peoples Day. I call upon the people of the United States to observe this day with appropriate ceremonies and activities, unquote. Well, it's only a matter of time before Columbus Day is scrapped by the federal government altogether. That is, if the intrepid pioneers of political correctness get their way. It's a shocking thing if you think about it. What kind of a country cancels the man who discovered it? Obviously, Christopher Columbus was not perfect, but neither was every American founding father, every saint, Moses and David and Abraham, Peter and Paul and the apostles, Mary Magdalene, and every icon of the left, from Woodrow Wilson to Margaret Sanger to even men like, yes, Martin Luther King Jr., for whom we have a national holiday. All humans are flawed. In fact, that's an essential teaching of the Western Christian tradition. My own story of learning that tradition is instructive, and it includes a rather painful Columbus lesson. The first course that I took as a pre-med major at the University of Pittsburgh in June 1987 was the college's required Western Civ course. I have fond memories of reading my various textbooks under the giant statue of Christopher Columbus at Shenley Park. I'd never given much thought to what Western Civ even was, nor the statue dedicated to Columbus. Not that my own knowledge mattered. As a young student in America, I humbled myself. I sat in the shadow, literally, of those who came before me. This is where we came from and what I thought we probably needed to know. Well, that was 35 years ago, and now that required Western Civ course at Pitt, like all other colleges, is gone, replaced with, you guessed it, a diversity course. That diversity, it applies to race, gender, and sexual orientation, and certainly not to 15th century Italian explorers. Quite the contrary. When I visited Shenley Park with my family a few months ago, I was stunned to see that that giant statue of Columbus was covered and bound, gagged, as if hiding some sort of giant disgrace. What you would expect to see of a statue of Stalin in Moscow or Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. The analogy is apt as Columbus is relegated to moral reprobate by our new revolutionaries bent on literally tearing him down. Again, it's a shocking thing. I repeat, 
what kind of a people tear down their country's discoverer? Answer, cultural ideological revolutionaries bent on redefining America and severing it from its roots. For them, Christopher Columbus is a whipping boy, and his statue and altar which to lay down the litany of the perceived sins of the great sinful colossus that is America. For those who want to reframe America as a misbegotten act, Columbus is their poster boy. He started it. Columbus is framed as a bigot who brought genocide to indigenous peoples. Worse, he brought them Christianity, which they didn't need as they lived idyllic lives of selfless love toward their neighbors. Cherokee and Apache, Iroquois and Comanche, reveled in utopian harmony until Columbus came along. And so, now, they're tearing down Columbus and his special day. Sad. Very, very sad. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengore. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KMUD-FM in Redway, California, KTOKAM in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, along with WRRN-FM in Warren, Pennsylvania. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.